The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. I'm going to spend the bulk of our time today in those verses 5 through 10, specifically talking about the request and why this request is so important and why it is so important that we understand it and are able to apply it effectively in our context. Now, to, to really get the whole idea of what this passage means, you need to see it in the big picture of, of Luke. And Now, the chapter before this, Luke uh, records the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. Talks about, um, you know, good actions. Who is your neighbor? Who do you take care of? Uh, then shortly thereafter that, he tells, uh, he, he's in that situation with Mary and Martha, and he addresses them, and, and specifically addresses the need to just stop and listen and be still. Quit doing things. And then shortly right after that, he goes right into this sermon on praying and tells this parable about this friend in need or the neighbor right next door. In this context, it's important to note that each one of these passages is tied together in the script. They're, they're, they're in a very, very important way, they're referred to from one to the next. It's kind of like using the and, the next passage, and the next passage. They were meant to be read, they were meant to be addressed in sequence. And the reason this is important is because I think that this gives a well-rounded view of what the Christian life looks like. If we were to just take the Good Samaritan in and of itself, we could do good deeds and be a very good Christian. If we were to take the whole premise of Mary and Martha, we could sit and listen all the time and never do anything and be a good Christian. If we were to take this friend in need just in and of itself, then we would be left with this idea that all we have to do is wake up in the middle of the night and give somebody bread. And that makes us a good Christian. What's important is that we need to look at this from the well-rounded scope of all these passages put together. I think what, what it really comes down to in this is this whole idea of the intercessor. What does it mean to be the intercessor? What does it mean to be somebody that, that is an agent of another person, that represents them, that defends them? What does it mean to be an intercessor? Now, I think that a lot of times this, this scripture gets messed up because we think we're being intercessors, but really I think on the Christian field a lot of times we struggle with this concept, which is, which is what I consider or call the junior messiah complex. Okay? As in, we have been ordained by Jesus himself to be his little junior messiahs. We went to junior messiah camp. We earned ourselves a badge by doing junior messiah things. We have a vest. And therefore, that qualifies us to be missionaries. And at no place in scripture is that qualification ever made. I think it's a huge miscommunication that we as Christians spend a lot of time engaging I think the intercessor is something much more than a junior messiah. I think the intercessor is somebody that defends, that takes part in, that is qualified solely because Christ gave you qualification by dying for your sins. That's what qualifies you as an intercessor. And that intercessor does not win the doing badge and and the the sewing badge and the making my own boat badge, but it it, it owns the only badge which it has in its arsenal, which is the prayer badge. That intercessor has one tool 
and one tool only in their bag. And that is the tool of prayer. And I think that once we engage that tool of prayer and we learn how to use it, that brings us to a new level where we do have access to different characters of God. But I think it has to start with prayer. As the intercessor, we must start with prayer. And that's why this scripture is so incredibly important. Because this scripture tells us something about prayer that unfortunately we have lost in our current day and age. We have lost this whole entire idea. This idea of being audacious. Now once again, that word doesn't even totally do the whole entire passage justice. Uh, it, it still leaves out things. If, if you wanted to, to bring an entire context and an entire definition to this word, you would really have to use a phrase. To, to shamelessly or fearlessly be bold. Now, once again, that, that takes out the context of me taking into um, account the, the receiver's feelings, which that's the part that doesn't really apply here. We, we in our, our societies, as we have all progressed over the ages, we have learned to become more and more um, dependent on ourselves, more and more dependent on, on me and what I can do and what gifts God has given me. And we've become less and less dependent on, on our neighbor. And so we, we find it hard to define this word because, unfortunately, we don't have the context which this word originally existed in, which is the relationship between neighbors. We don't have that anymore. We've lost the whole idea of neighbors. Now, to define this word, you would have to say a neighbor coming to their fellow neighbor and saying, I need something. And requiring that, demanding that, being bold, daring. Another, another definition says, with resolute fearlessness, persistent, recklessly bold or rash, contemptuous of law, imposing. This, this request is so demanding that there is nothing else to this person. They demand this request. When Jesus told this parable... This was the context that this was operating in. These, these families, these neighbors, were living next to each other for generations. If it was an urban setting, they were living probably on top of each other or right next to each other. These, these neighbors were incredibly dependent on each other. We're talking about a day and age where, according to this passage, the person didn't have bread simply to give to their friend. It was a day and age where you literally depended on your neighbor for survival. We have lost that day and age. We cannot understand that. We've been given a relationship here on earth to help us demonstrate what this relationship is close to, and that's, that's a relationship of marriage. But even that, in our modern day and age, we can always just divorce that and go be dependent on ourselves anyway. There wasn't this, there's no longer this dependency and that I am dependent on you for life. So unfortunately, we don't have the context anymore where we can derive a meaning for this word. So I have to do my best to try and ex describe to you how incredibly important this request really was. This request was so bold, it was rude. It was absolutely rude. In fact, the neighbor didn't care how rude it was. He was on a mission to get bread, and therefore he went to his neighbor's house. He woke up his entire household to get bread. Now... To, to help you realize how ridiculous this is modern day times, can you imagine now your neighbor coming over to your house in the middle of the night to knock on your door for bread, to wake up your entire family, your entire family that happens to live in one room, sleeps in one room, you just put your, you know, your twin three-year-olds to bed, and this person comes and starts knocking on your door. 
and says, I want bread. That just sounds ridiculous to us. It is so far-fetched from what we currently observe that we have a hard time engaging with this whole principle. Another bold relationship is documented in Luke 18, which I think demonstrates another aspect of this request. That passage, 18, 1 through 8, is called the parable of the persistent widow. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant them justice quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? The reason I think it's important that we look at at this parable as well is because it kind of captures another piece of this request. This request so powerful that even sinful men cannot deny justice. This widow was going to have justice. This widow was going to nag this this leader until she finally got her justice. She was going to ask. She was going to require. And she was not going to leave him alone until she got this. Now where the disconnect is, is we've made it comfortable in Christianity nowadays to say, well, I asked and God didn't really come through, so, you know, I'm just going to be done with that. That's not really a big deal. I'll just move on. Or God doesn't really answer my prayers. Or, or maybe God isn't in today. Or, or the, the famous excuse that sounds really humble is, it's just my fault. I just don't have what it takes to be a prayer warrior. So I'm not going to get my request. And you just write it off with that and be done. That type of activity is never condoned in Scripture. In fact, Jesus is telling extreme parables specifically for the purpose of telling us, don't give up. Keep asking. Be naggy. Make demands. Tell me exactly what you want. Nag me. Be raw. Be honest. Have a real desire. And put that behind your request. That's what Jesus is asking us here. He's asking us for that raw intensity of a relationship where we can come and we can ignore all social protocol and make a demanding request of our neighbor. That's the request that Jesus is asking for here. If even an evil man can help enact justice, then how much better is God? How much more likely is God to give you justice in your particular situation? In Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, it says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, get, listen to the tone here. 
Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting Him. For our guilty conscience have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. Go right into the presence of God and make your demand. And you don't even have to feel guilty about it. Because your guilt has been sprinkled with Christ's blood. We don't have to be guilty in making requests of our Heavenly Father. How much does He want to fulfill those requests and give us what we need? Yet now, if we're too demanding of God, then we say it's disrespectful. If we're too respectful, we can't be intimate with God. If we're too intimate and we forget about respect, we forget who God is and what He's done and what He's created in our lives. This makes the Christian life very complex. You need both things. Now, how does this, how did this, how did this translate even further into our context? When, the, when this scripture was written, the meaning then was the, the neighbor, that relationship, there was, some, there was a context in that word. It wasn't just a neighbor. I have lots of neighbors, okay? And, and I would never go ask them for bread in the middle of the night. It just, it just wouldn't happen. In this context, by defining that person as a neighbor, you were defining a dependent relationship, a relationship of mortal dependence, that without neighbors, you could die. You could starve to death. These neighbors live next to you for generation after generation after generation. You didn't just get up and move your house every three years during this time frame. You planted and you stayed there. Your neighbors were your neighbors your entire life. This neighbor was an intense relationship. Now, in the Good Samaritan, we get the idea of how far to what lengths a neighbor would go. Jesus set us the principle in the Good Samaritan of exactly where that bar is set for the neighbor. The neighbor comes by, picks up his friend, provides for his needs, pays two days' wages for him to get taken care of, and offers that if there's any problems, I'll come back and I'll continue to pay the rest of their tab. That's what a neighbor does in this time frame. We've lost that. So you have to get out of your context and that, oh, my neighbor came over and asked me for bread. It's more like my two-year-old daughter came to me after I haven't seen her in a year and told me that she's starving. I'm going to drop everything I can at that moment to give that person bread or to give that person what they need. That is a request of dire consequence. Hospitality was considered one of the greatest responsibilities of that day and age. You respected somebody based on how you took care of them. When that guest arrived, we have to remember that that guest could have come from who knows how far away. Walked. Sat on a donkey from a very long distance. People generally don't take a short walk to their neighbor's house and end there in the middle of the night. If they got there in the middle of the night, chances are good they came from a long distance and they didn't have their timing quite worked out. Or they knew that they would get there in the middle of the night, but it was such a long distance it didn't matter. This person came from a long distance. Maybe this guest had arrived unexpectedly and caught this neighbor off guard. Yet they're still socially required to care for this friend. What are you going to do at that point in time? Well, you're going to do the only thing you know how to do. At that point in time, you're going to go find means to help that friend. The different context is is that back then, you couldn't just go to 7-Eleven and pick up two loaves of bread and a thing of milk and get some cereal and come back and feed your guest. The only place you could go at that time of night was your neighbor's house. That was it. 
So in that context, this was a dire request. Now in this particular case, this friend felt this need, this urge to intercede on behalf of this friend that had come and visited them. I mean, could you imagine us having a guest that comes to you in the middle of the night like that and you just say, well, your bed's not really ready yet, so can you go find a place to stay and just come back in the morning? I mean, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't even do that in today's modern day. <laughs> this was necessary. This was also a really new idea. And it was actually... It was, it was odd to place God in this context with this neighbor. When Jesus was telling this parable, he was telling you that you can demand and be rude to God, which in that day and age you just didn't do. There was still tons of liturgy involved in how they worshipped. There was rules. There was walls that you had to go through in order to get into worship. This was, this was a highly structured environment. And Jesus here is telling this parable and that I want you to come right to my doorstep, ignore all those walls, forget the veil, walk up, knock on my door in the middle of the night, and make a demanding request of me. For this day and age, that was a very uh, rude, a very disrespectful way to approach God. And I'd like to say that we're different now, but I think now we still keep a lot of that. We still think that that's a rude or disrespectful way to approach God. Even now that we've had the Holy Spirit in our lives and active for thousands of years, and yet we still cannot approach God with the intimacy that He has asked us for. As I said, this, this whole concept is really difficult to translate into our modern day and age because we don't have a context where this relationship exists. But I'm going to ask you to search your brain, search your mind, and find a context in your life where a need is so great that you are okay waking up an entire family. We've got to get rid of all the modern day technological things that we put in place and say, okay, well now I have my cell phone so they'll call me but they won't wake up my entire family. Okay, so I'll call them because I know it'll just wake them up. That's okay. You've got to get rid of those ideas. If you come and you ask your friend for this, in the middle of the night, they are going to wake up, they are going to wake up their entire family, you are going to greatly inconvenience them, and you are going to demand that they give you what you ask for. Think of a context where that exists. What would have to happen? What would have to go wrong in your life to be in that position? As I was thinking through this, I came up with a couple of key areas. Pretty much somebody would almost have to die. There would have to be blood. There would have to be a hospital visit. Something that puts somebody in dire risk. That's the only context where I would probably venture down this road. I wouldn't wake up in the middle of the night with an epiphany and decide to go you know, share it with my neighbor in the middle of the night. No, that can wait till the morning. Write it down, share it with him in the morning. Wake up in the middle of the night, you have a bit of a grumble in your stomach, you go to the refrigerator, there's no food in there. You hop on your motorbike and you go to 7-Eleven and you bring it back. You get a call in the middle of the night, some tough news. Maybe somebody that you know has died or had a tough time, and you have that news and you really want somebody to engage with. But even then, we would probably still wait until the morning time to engage our neighbor. Maybe our spouse at that point in time, but we would probably still wait until the morning to engage our neighbor. 
somebody would have to be dying for this to happen. So what I want you to do is I want to put this scripture in that sort of context. A neighbor comes knocking on your door at 2 a.m. You happen to live in a very small house with all three of your kids, all of them put to sleep, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-year-old. That person starts banging on your door. I need help. My father's just had a heart attack. Call 911. I need you to get up right now. I'm demanding you to get up and do something right now. That's the context in which this request exists. An incredibly personal, intimate context. Now, does this context just exist with anybody? Is this a perfect stranger? No, they've known each other for generations. Is this somebody that you've never met? No, absolutely not. This is somebody that you are in a relationship with. Would you allow yourself to be this vulnerable with a random stranger? Probably not. So once again, to take context for this particular passage, I'm going to take us back to God's modern-day equivalent of this relationship, which would have something to do with marriage. Marriage is important because marriage defines how we should be in an emotionally intimate relationship with somebody. In your marriage, how vulnerable are you? I know this is something I struggle greatly with. My wife and I were talking about it yesterday. This is something that I have a hard time with. I have a hard time being vulnerable with just wearing my emotions on my sleeve, with letting other people be part of what's personal to me. That's something that's very, very difficult for me. Yet God has told us that that is the intense, intimate relationship that he requires of us. We can't even do that on earth with our spouses. How are we going to have that with Christ? Honestly, I think it's probably easier to have it here with a spouse than it is to have it with Christ. If we can't master that, how are we going to intimately know Christ? When you're in a time of intense vulnerability, who do you go to? I'm reminded of a, a story when I, was, when I was a kid. I grew up in really rural South Dakota, which for those of you that have ever been to South Dakota, South Dakota is rural. So to qualify it as really rural South Dakota means that I was in the most rural of the ruralest places of all of South Dakota, which just might be one of the most rural places on the planet. The population density was like four cows to one person, okay? You, I, I went to a school where my class of the entire county was 23 people. And that was a public school. This is a tiny, tiny, very rural neighborhood with farms as far as the eye can see. Very rural. And I can remember when I, when I was trying to think through a context of where in my life have I experienced this type, type of a desire, I, I thought to this particular context where in this rural environment, the people are very dependent on the land. As a farmer, you, you are absolutely dependent on the weather and what happens, and you take a huge risk to be a farmer, and if you have a bad year, it can put you out of business. And when we lived in that context, my dad was a, is a pastor. He's still a pastor, but he was a pastor then as well. And this was probably 15 years ago. And I can remember... I was Longer than 15 years ago. Wow, it was almost 20 years ago. 1995, July 5th. A big storm came through. In the middle of the night, 
softball-sized hail with giant, huge, big, nubby ice things on it. July 5th, for any of you that know anything about harvest and where your crops are in their stages at that point in time, July 5th is a really unfortunate time for this to happen because you have everything planted and halfway done. Maybe even three-quarters of the way done for your first, for your first harvest. This storm came through and demolished everything. Almost every person in my parents' church of 45 members was da- had great, great damage. Several of those families went out of business because of it. Farms that had been in these families' generations for decades, decades, were no longer there because they had this one unfortunate experience. And I remember, to this day, that storm came, and we were just fine, safe in our house. We didn't live on a farm. We lived in the parsonage. And, but I remember waking up to people knocking on our door, banging on our door, banging on our door, help us, help us, help us. Some people had, had managed to get, the only thing they could save was get their equipment inside. And they came banging on my parents' door, get everybody, I have, I have a big family, I'm one of seven kids, at that point in time there were five of us alive, four of us could drive tractors. So, and I was the youngest, so I was the youngest and I was the one that really couldn't do much. But their request was, get everybody you can that can drive anything and get them out there now. There's this huge storm coming, and if you don't come, we are going to lose everything. Not only our crops, but our equipment. Everything will be beat to a pulp. We will be done. We will be finished. Our families will be done. And I can remember my parents just coming through the house, just like a whirlwind, whipping us all out of bed, rolling us out of bed. Come on, we're going, we're going. We all hop, pack into our big 15-passenger van, And we go tearing over to this person's farm and we spend the next 12 hours of our lives just sacrificially, doesn't matter what is in our way, moving equipment, getting things inside. The storm came about three hours into that and so there was a good chunk of stuff that didn't actually make it. But then as soon as that storm came and went, it lasted all of about 20 minutes, then we spent the next several hours picking things up, fixing the tree that had fallen on their roof, taking that off getting their equipment further safe, making sure that everybody was safe, going around from house to house to house, farm to farm to farm, seeing what the damage was. Has anybody been hurt? It took a 2,000-pound trailer full of army tents that we had for a tent ministry that we have that was parked in our yard and threw it across our yard. It was a big storm. This was a time of intense need. This was a time of, I am in just, I, I have nowhere else to go. You must come and help us. These people shamelessly and boldly came and woke us all up in the middle of the night to come and help them in their time of need. When I try and think of a context where this request exists, that's really the only one in my life I can come up with. Something that was so life threatening. And I've learned several things from studying this particular context in that we don't do God justice by trying to respect him by keeping him at arm's length. There's no scripture that condones that. In fact, we do him a great disservice. He desires nothing more than to be an intimate part of our lives and our relationships and our hearts. And even the nasty, grody, ugly stuff, he wants a piece of that. He wants a chance at healing it, at being part of it. We can shamelessly and boldly come and request from God 
anything that we need. And God has promised us several times in Scripture, recorded by several different Gospels, that if we ask, we will receive. When I tried to find more examples of this in Scriptures, almost all of them went back to Old Testament. I've been spending the last year slowly, piece by piece by piece, working through the Old Testament. Just an arduous, slow process. And immediately I thought of the psalmist, Job, Isaiah, Samuel, David, Moses, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These people that we hold up as men of God, the reason they had that relationship is because they shamelessly and boldly went before God and they told him exactly how they felt. I want to read a scripture from you for you um, from Jeremiah. Chapter 20, verse 7. O Lord, you misled me. It's wow, a great start, huh? <laughs> and I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am, and you overpowered me. When I speak, the words burst out. Violence and destruction, I shout. So these messages from the Lord have made me a household joke. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak His name, His word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones. I am worn out trying to hold, on, hold it in. I can't do it. I have heard the many rumors about me. They call me the man who lives in terror. They threaten. If you say anything, we will report it. Even my old friends are watching me, waiting for a fatal slip. He will trap himself, they say. And then he will get our revenge on him. This was an incredibly intense, emotional outburst to God. You misled me. I don't know a single culture on this planet where you are encouraged (laughs) to address a superior person in that context. We have taken that out of our culture. We have taken that out of our context. In the West, we tend to be much more direct to, to people that are over us. But even in that context, you wouldn't walk into that person and just lay it down for them. I know that that's really not okay in a lot of Asian contexts, where respect in your family and those people put over the top of you is still a very important premise in your culture. You would not go to your boss and, and just... Boom, like that. You wouldn't do it. We've taken it out of our culture. So how can we understand this? Unfortunately, what we do is we take our modern day culture and we project it onto the scripture. And we say, oh, well, it really wasn't that kind of a request. He was just making a happy request. And, you know, the guy was more annoyed and helped him more out of annoyance rather than anything else. And he didn't really, you know, that God's not really saying that I should be disrespectful to him. God's not really saying that. You're right, God's not actually saying that. But God is saying that I expect you to come and tell me what you need, when you need it, in a way that is shameless and bold. That's exactly what I'm asking you to do. In fact, I'm asking you to do it because it respects me, it gives me glory, when you are emotionally invested in our relationship. It gives me glory when you outburst and just share your emotions with me. Because that's the type of relationship I want to have. In your marriage... Would a relationship that never 
went down this path, would that be okay? Would that be a vital, exciting, long-lasting relationship? Can you just tiptoe around your spice, your spouse, your spice, your spouse? <laughs> Maybe for some of us, there are spice. Um, I don't know. Why I said that. Anyway, <laughs> could you just tiptoe around your spouse your entire life and never emotionally engage with them and have a vital relationship? It doesn't work in marriage. So why do we assume that it's going to work in our relationship with God, which marriage is supposed to be a depiction of? We must be emotionally engaged. Now, I'm not saying that this means go and emotionally engage God and forget the respect thing altogether. What I'm saying is you don't have to worry about offending God. Be emotional. Be invested. Tell Him what you think. If you're upset at Him, tell Him. Use Jeremiah's example. God, you misled me. You brought me here and you told me it was going to be something totally different and then there was a bait and switch and I'm really mad at you. You misled me. When was the last time you engaged God about something in your life on that level? Or is your prayer still, still mostly in the range of, well, you know, our support isn't quite what it should be. So if you could help if it's not too much time or energy, I would appreciate it. Don't put yourself out. Is that what your prayers sound like? Maybe your prayers are even a little bit more direct. And God, God, we really need more support. So we would really, you know, we, we would really like you to provide that. We feel like you have called us here. And, and we, we really think that you should provide that. Notice the difference in how you request it. We really think that you should probably provide that. Or if you, is your prayer more like, God, you told me that if I came here, you were going to provide for me. So get to it. Make good on your promise. I'm here. I'm doing what you told me to do. I am demanding this of you, that you fulfill your promise. God loves it when we demand Him to fulfill His promises. He wants to fulfill them. Request that of Him. Request Him to fulfill His promise to you. Demand it. Because you will never be dependent on Him, truly dependent on Him, until you can engage Him on that level. You won't be. Up until that point in time, you're still just making friendly requests to a person that may or may not possibly exist or have made a promise to you or may or may not have made a promise to you and might have directed your life to this point in time. You're not making a request of somebody that has given you direction in life and put you in a place. If this was a human we were talking about that said, pick up all your stuff, move to Thailand, start a ministry, and I'm going to provide for you. And then the provision didn't come. If this was a person and you had a family, and you moved them, and you did what you were told, you better believe they're going to get a nasty email. They promised me. I'm going to call them up. I'm going to Skype them so they can see my face when I tell them just how mad I am. If it was a person we were dealing with, that's the type of relationship we would have. But unfortunately, we don't have that type of relationship because we don't see God as that type of a person. We don't see God as wanting to be involved in our lives in that way, shape, and form. We see God as somebody that stands way back in the rafters and kind of directs things in a big picture and tweaks things here and there and, you know, if you talk really loudly, he might get it. No, God told you to get up, move your family, and come here and promised that if you do that, he will provide for you. Not only all things will work for good for those who love me. 
That's a big promise. Has he fulfilled that promise in your life? Have you told him how he hasn't fulfilled that promise in your life? Have you been in an engaging conversation where you told God how cheated you really feel? How bitter you've really become? Because he wants that. Because then he knows you truly respect him. When you engage him like that, you tell him, I know you can change this. I'm being honest and bold and shameless with you because I know that you can flip that switch and change everything. Why aren't you? That is the type of vital relationship that we should be engaged in. And I'm sorry, but we have fallen so short in our lives, our families, our spouses, our kids. Yet to even say that we haven't even gone down that path with the Creator, the being, the person that gets us, that understands our anger. We can't be emotionally engaged with our spouse because we feel like they don't get us. Well, God gets you. He understands it. He knows you're sinful. He knows you've got issues and that you struggle with things. It's not going to surprise Him. You're not going to let Him in on your little secret. He knows. Engage Him. Have a vital relationship. These people, the psalmist, Job, Samuel, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets, all the major prophets, pretty much anybody that ever read or wrote Scripture has engaged God on this level and been emotional and intense. And we look at them and say, how do we have that? I don't have that. I want that. God, should I just be reading my Bible differently? Or do I need different friends? Or you know, We think of all these things and God is telling us, just engage me in prayer in a bold and shameless way. That's what God is asking of us. Intimacy and respect go hand in hand. If you don't respect God, you can't be intimate with Him. Because how could He make good on His promises? If you're not intimate with God, how could you respect Him? Because you don't fully understand His character. The Christian life is dependent on both of those things. And if you find yourself going down one path or the other like myself, you've got to do something. Put on the brakes and figure out what it is that's missing. Figure it out. Because God does not desire for you to have a complacent, mundane relationship with Him on earth so that maybe someday in heaven you'll experience Him for real. That's not what He expects. He wants that heavenly emotional bind where you feel his love and his passion, where you feel his grace and his mercy, where you cry when he cries, where you get happy when he gets happy. He desires that for you now, engaged in prayer. So how do we do this? George MacDonald wrote that the way he does it is through Scripture. He's got prayer ADD, just like Tim always says, and I have, and I'm sure none of you actually probably suffer from that. But he says, what I do is I sit down and I focus myself on a Scripture. And I repeat that Scripture over and over and over again in my head. If I don't have my Bible, I memorize a simple, easy one. 
And I memorize it and I just go over it and over it and over it and over it in my head. And I engage with that emotionally. If it's a scripture about God being excited and happy, then be excited and happy. If it's a scripture about God being upset, about him being anger, then be upset and be angry. Rehearse that scripture with him over and over and over again. Rehearse his words in your heart. Be engaged with him emotionally. If that takes you three minutes a day or four hours a day, it doesn't matter. Have you connected with God? For some of you, for me, it takes a long time. (laughs) For some of you, it might come easier. From all the people that I respect that are good at this, they all tell me that it always starts out taking a long time and eventually it gets easier and easier. Practice. And the more and more they emotionally get in context with God, the more and the more they really realize how little they get and how much more of that they want. Don't let our modern context take your emotions out of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's good not to let them rule you. But if you're not engaging with God emotionally, then just think of how much that would hurt your marriage if you weren't engaging with your spouse emotionally. And God being perfect is way more hurt than that. I want to tell you one last story. Some, something that's been very encouraging to me in my life. Somebody that I really admire as a prayer warrior. This last... Last year? Yeah, last year. Wow. I had the, we had the chance to go back to the States. And it was our every intention for us to eventually end up in Illinois to go visit my grandmother, who had been dying for years and years and years. It was one of those situations where we knew it was coming. It was not a new thing. For many, many years, we knew this was coming. For 15 years, she had like her first multiple bypass surgery 15 years prior and another one 12 years after that. And yeah, it was just this constant thing. And through this experience, she went from as complacent a Christian as you could possibly be to somebody that was intensely engaged with her creator. Somebody that single-handedly transformed her family to a family that could care less about God into a family that could care deeply that God exists. She was a great influence in that. Well, one day before we got to Illinois, she passed away. And unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to engage with her that last time. But I'll tell you what, I've come to terms with that. Because at her funeral, there were some really awesome things that happened. And for one, my brother, who I greatly respect, my older brother, who is one of those people that that has just learned some good lessons in life. He was sitting right next to me, and the one impression my grandma made on him was that every day she got out her list and she spent hours praying for every single one of us. Hours. I can remember going to their house. Where's grandma? She's back praying. Okay, let's go eat lunch. We'll be back in a couple of hours. She'll still be there. 
I made light of it at that point in time, but I realize now how amazing of a ministry that was. I had the, the, also the experience on the other side of things. My dad's mom was an amazing prayer warrior. Sometimes she would lose herself in her room for six, eight hours at a time, just emotionally engaged in prayer, going through her list. When she died, she had 32 grandkids that she prayed for by name individually every morning and night. That doesn't include all of the others that she prayed for. People that engage emotionally with God want more of Him. And six hours in prayer doesn't seem like that long to somebody that is engaged. If you are emotionally engaged with your wife, is a two-hour dinner really way too long? Or do you enjoy the conversation? Do you enjoy what your relationship has to offer in that context? Because I think that the more and more engaged you get, the more and more emotionally invested you get in your relationship with Jesus Christ, the less and less it's going to matter how long you're speaking with him. These people in my life demonstrated the value of being engaged with Christ and to this day have influenced my family for the better because they were determined to spend a ton of time just praying. So that's what I want to encourage you to today. We can't take our current context and culture and project that onto what we thought God might have meant. We need to understand what he really did mean and then take that and apply it in our lives. We can't apply our Western or our Asian context onto this relationship and say that's disrespectful or we wouldn't engage them that way because then we make God petty. What we need to do is we need to find his original meaning for this text. And we need to apply that deeply into our lives. Because that original meaning is what is going to make our lives exciting. It's what's going to make our ministry useful. It's what's going to make our ministry good. Because at that point in time, our ministry becomes worth less and less. We have less and less of the junior messiah complex and more and more of the intercessor complex. That's what I want to encourage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this message among, um, among your Christians nowadays is a very difficult one to understand, to engage with, Lord. It requires us to go back against the last... 2,000 years that we've spent becoming less and less dependent on each other and more and more dependent on ourselves, it requires us to become fully dependent, which is very counter who we are. So Lord, I pray that you give us grace and mercy in this. Lord, that we would walk away from here understanding what you desire for our relationship, that you desire emotional context, that for you, intimacy is respectful. Lord, I pray that not just in our relationship with you, Lord, but that you also translate this into our marriages and our relationships with our kids and our friends and our families. Lord, that we would engage. Lord, that we would have vital, exciting relationships. Lord, that we would pray boldly, shamelessly. Lord, that this would be something that rules our lives. Lord, that if we can say that we've truly engaged with you emotionally on a daily basis, Lord, that we will have accomplished that day which you have intended for us to accomplish on any given day. 
Everything else, Lord, is just extra. So, Lord, I do pray that that is the prayer of our hearts as we leave here today. Lord, I pray that that is the prayer of our hearts as we continue to engage in in worship. Lord, that we would pour our hearts and souls into this. Lord, that you would break down barriers for people that have put up barriers. And Lord, that this would be a place of true worship and desire in our lives today. Pray all these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.